From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. How might the pandemic play out long term? Politicians talk about reaching the finish line, but that sort of cut and dried ending isn't terribly realistic. Instead, things may play out as they have in San Juan County, Colorado, home to Silverton. It has one of the nation's highest vaccination rates and yet is still vulnerable for a bunch of reasons that we'll explore with reporter Ray Ellen Bichelle of Kaiser Health News. She'll also explain what it means to fight COVID using the Swiss cheese defense. Then we stick with Silverton to revisit the oldest newspaper on the Western Slope, the Standard and the Miner. Silverton is all about history. The whole town is a national historic district. When you come to Silverton, you step back into, say, the 1890s. And satisfying fall cravings for cider. You know CPR is your trusted source for news and information. But did you know that service is funded by the community? None of what you tune in for is possible without voluntary donations. You can be a part of making it all happen when you join as a member today. Check out the wide range of thank you gifts and monthly giving levels. And donate now at CPR.org. Or 800-496-1530. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. One of the most vaccinated places in the country is San Juan County in southwest Colorado, whose county seat and only incorporated town is Silverton. The state says 100 percent of San Juan's eligible population has gotten at least one COVID shot. Still, the virus continues to circulate there for a whole host of reasons. As reporter Ray Ellen Bichelle found, she's with Kaiser Health News. Hi, Ray. Hi, thanks for having me. I want to start with what your story is not about. Despite having been co-opted by an anti-vax website, this is not a story designed to make the reader question vaccines. Say just a few words about that. Yeah, so that definitely didn't feel good as a reporter. Um, But basically, there, there are some people searching for evidence to support some unfounded ideas about vaccines. Um, This story does not fit that bill. Um, The people in San Juan County who were hit hard by COVID, and I'm talking hospitalized on ventilators, um, they were all believed to be unvaccinated. So the story here um, is, is not, does not at all indicate a problem with the vaccines. They were doing what they're supposed to do in San Juan County, which is keep people out of the hospital or morgue. What I do think is really important about San Juan County and and why I really delved into it for this story is um, after talking to a lot of epidemiologists, it's really a living example of how the Swiss cheese model of COVID defense can work. The Swiss cheese model, and uh, it's a very visual way of understanding the uh, various weapons we have against COVID. Explain the Swiss cheese model. Yeah. So the gist is there are layers. So imagine um, one piece of Swiss cheese probably has a bunch of holes in it. Mm -hmm. Um, If you're defending yourself with one piece of Swiss cheese, it's probably not going to be great. If you're layering them all together, it can be an effective defense. So the way that I've seen public health people explain this is, uh, you know, maybe with COVID, one layer is uh, wearing masks indoors. One layer is the vaccine, a really important very, very important layer in the Swiss cheese model is vaccines. Uh, But it's not the only one. 
the, the idea is there's no single silver bullet. You really need this combination of tools. Um, so, I, you know, I, I listed masks and vaccines, but there's plenty of other ones, contact tracing, quarantine and isolation, um, you know, all sorts of support systems to allow people to do things that will keep the people around them safe um, and on and on. It's fascinating because I think people have been quick to dismiss a weapon in the fight against COVID-19 if it's not a silver bullet. But you're saying none of it is. It is the combination of them that creates the defense. Let's jump further into what your story is about San Juan County, whose year-round population hovers somewhere around 700. Highly vaccinated, but still vulnerable. What are some of the reasons that a very vaccinated county might still be vulnerable. I mean, one is just porous borders, boundaries, right? Yeah, exactly. And and I think that's true for everywhere. I mean, Silverton is, uh, you look on a map, it looks really isolated. You know, there's like one road that goes in and one road that goes out. Um, often in many months of the year, uh, that road gets closed due to wildfires or avalanches. So we're talking a place that like on the surface seems like it would be pretty isolated. But even there, the boundaries are incredibly porous. So in fact, in the summer, you have a, a doubling of the population. You have the diehards who are there year round, even in the winter. But then in the summer, you get all the people who have maybe second homes or maybe they run seasonal businesses or they work seasonal jobs um, or they're just coming to stay for a few weeks or months because um, it's an amazing, like beautiful place with all sorts of good outdoor stuff to do. So the population changes in a big way seasonally. And what that means for uh, public health folks is that uh, they don't actually know who their population is or how vaccinated they are hmm. uh, in, in the summer. And that's that's what we saw um, this past summer in Silverton. Ray, your story made me look at the map of Colorado county by county for vaccination rates. And it turns out that many highly vaccinated counties in Colorado are right next to ones that are quite lowly vaccinated so mm -hmm. San Juan County may be one of the most vaccinated in the country, but right next door in Dolores County, just 43 percent of people have gotten one shot or more. And that kind of juxtaposition is true across Colorado. Indeed, take Route County, for instance, home to Steamboat Springs, 83 yep. percent vaccinated in Route, one county over in Rio Blanco, 43 percent. Summit County, 91 percent but immediately south in Park County, 53%. What does San Juan County tell us about what the future of the pandemic might look like? Because I think that's really one fascinating part of your piece. Yeah. Well, first, I, I just want to address you made a really good point there about how um, we're, we're very focused data-wise on counties, but those don't really represent necessarily the actual social networks of yeah. people. Um, so, for example, people in Silverton, they go over to Durango all the time for groceries. Um, people in uh, people in many different counties might go to Grand Junction. Uh, so, and disease really does travel along social networks. So, uh, in many ways, those county lines are kind of not the most effective uh, ways to to understand a community and its vulnerability mm. by just looking in those within those geographic boundaries. But to your point, to your question that that you just asked, like what does San Juan County show for the future? I mean, I, I think one of the big takeaways that that I have is um, 
uh, you know, they're saying we're even we are not invincible, even with this incredible vaccination rate. We're not invincible to the existing variants or possibly future variants. Um, and uh, and they're saying to residents to pay attention to the COVID situation like they would the weather. Basically, it's an evolving scenario and um, and they're willing to uh, use the tools that are available. So when they had this big surge, a big for them surge in a small county over the summer, they were willing to bring back uh, for a whole month an, an indoor mask requirement. Um, and they were also willing to discourage um, indoor events, even though it, it had felt like, um, I think for many of us going into the summer, a time when we could finally stop thinking about that. Well, the notion of viral weather, you know, the viral weather forecast, and, you know, if it were raining outside, we'd don a jacket. And if, you know, there's a particular uh, virus circulating or strain circulating, then you don a mask. That's a fascinating way to think about it. But it's in stark contrast to what we hear from some politicians that the finish line is within sight, you know, that this is a marathon and that we'll, we'll complete it, right? That, mm-hmm. that picture may not be accurate. Yeah, I think there's something really compelling on a personal and other, and much larger level uh, that that there is a, a line that we can cross, um, whatever it is, that will mean this is over. And uh, unfortunately, that's not what I've gathered from talking to epidemiologists who are who are really thinking about what the future looks like with COVID. They're really saying this is a moment where we learn to live with the virus. There, there is no finish line with the contagiousness of things like the Delta variant. Herd immunity is not mathematically possible. So we, we're going to have to just table that idea. Um, and, and going forward, um, we'll, we'll, you know, the, the, the virus will, um, will change. The expectation is it'll take a few years. It'll probably be more like something like the common cold. Um, so not as as severe as it is uh, these days, but uh, we're we're in we're kind of having like growing pains into into the next phase of of the pandemic, which is living with COVID. It will be fascinating to see what kind of defense the boosters convey, how long lasting that is, and how robust it is against the variants and any potential coming variants. Uh, but an illustration of how one Colorado county, San Juan County, uh, can really tell us something about the national picture. Ray, thank you so much for sharing your reporting. Thank you, Ryan. Ray Allen Bashell of Kaiser Health News on how the pandemic has unfolded, indeed, in one southwest Colorado county. Still to come, the only statewide requirement to graduate high school, and kids may be missing out on it. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Robots moved from science fiction to reality a few decades ago, and now they're an ever-increasing presence in the workplace. How does that shape the economy? Thursday night, David Brancaccio of Marketplace and I, Avery Lill from Colorado Matters, discuss automation in the workplace at the closing keynote session of Denver Startup Week, focusing on everything entrepreneurial in Denver. Events are in person and online. Schedule at denverstartupweek.org. There's only one statewide requirement to graduate high school in Colorado, but as CPR's Jenny Brundine reports, students may be getting their diplomas without meeting it. Carol Harvey walks back and forth every day in front of the state capitol. 
A lone indigenous woman, fanny pack filled with water, walking sticks at her sides, she takes long strides. This march of mine is a moral act. It's a sacred commitment on my part. Harvey says 160 years ago, the U.S. government forcibly marched Navajo Indians 400 miles away from their homeland. Starvation, slavery, prostitution, and disease followed. If I can't walk a few miles here until this course is satisfied, Well, I'm willing to go 600 miles. The course the 70-year-old is talking about is Colorado's only state graduation requirement. Here it is. Students must take a civil government course, which includes the history, culture, and social contributions of African Americans, Latinos, and indigenous people. That's the gist of it. The law was amended in 2019 to include other groups, too. Harvey says Cherry Creek School District, where her grandchildren go to school, doesn't offer a civil government course that deals with those areas. My concern is that civil rights are being violated of these students. The Colorado judiciary has upheld the law three times, but the instruction isn't happening in most schools. Now, this gets nuanced. School districts like Cherry Creek say there is indigenous content. A couple of district high schools offer an ethnic studies course, but they're electives, not mandatory. Content may also turn up in a history class, not a government course like the law specifies. Uh, That's Donna Christian. My name is Donna Christian. Christian is Lakota and Dene, a mother of five with children in the Cherry Creek District. She also teaches classes to educators who want to beef up their knowledge of indigenous content. She says in high school, indigenous references may crop up during a history lesson on Manifest Destiny or Westward Expansion. So then we will pop up in a paragraph or maybe a one sentence, but there's never enough content to really give perspective. She says some individual teachers make real efforts to include Indigenous content, but most government courses are far from what the Colorado law specifies. Just says 22-1-104, so let me find it. This is Joanna Bruno of the Colorado Department of Education. She's looking up the statute from 1998. History, culture, social contributions of minorities, including... One thing that's important to understand, in Colorado, the state sets the academic standards. But it's the local districts then that choose the curriculum they want to use to meet those standards. Despite the 1998 law, for years there were no references to American Indians in high school civic standards. Now the word tribal is inserted several times whenever the string of words local, state, and national appear. That's it. Bruno says there's no audit in Colorado of schools' compliance, no curriculum police. She says she thinks schools are likely teaching what the law requires. I don't have any reason to believe that they aren't. Uh, Nothing's been brought to our attention about that. Carol Harvey, meantime, says she has sent a petition calling for an audit to everyone imaginable, state officials, the governor, the U.S. Department of Justice, and the Office of Civil Rights. The latter, in a recent national report, found that the lack of indigenous representation in the curriculum harms students. Donna Christian agrees. As soon as we start 1492 and sailing the ocean blue, We know that that is not the truth of who we are and where we come from, and we are immediately erased. Then we're triggered that I'm just not included in this classroom perspective or this narrative. Harvey says when you don't see yourself in the curriculum, when you don't see any positive examples of people who look like you, it's hard to feel engaged. 
The indigenous graduation rate is 67% in Colorado, compared to 82% statewide. A full 70% of indigenous students don't meet reading and writing expectations. Again, Donna Christjohn. Our invisibility and our erasure in this country is on purpose. It is built in through federal policies, and it is institutionalized in our school systems. State and district officials, meantime, say the state is in the midst of revising social studies curriculum to include more content about racial and ethnic minorities. Carol Harvey and Donna Christjohn's ancestors have been here for 20,000 years. They say they're not going anywhere, and they're not giving up. Jenny Brendeen, CPR News. We began the show in San Juan County, and let's head back there now. Silverton is home to the oldest newspaper on the Western Slope. The Standard and the Miner became a historic site in journalism in 2012. It's an honor from the Society of Professional Journalists. And at the time, I spoke with the paper's then-editor and publisher, Mark Esper. Mark, thanks for being with us. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. I understand that keeping the newspaper alive hasn't always been easy. Well, keeping any newspaper alive these days is not particularly easy. But yes, this newspaper itself... Going back for a long time, there's a story of the one of the first editors here. Silverton often got cut off by avalanches and blockades. He ended up having to print the newspaper on blue wrapping paper he got from a butcher in town because <laughs> he ran out of paper. So hardships in the journalism business up here, nothing new. <laughs> what are some of the stories, or perhaps one, that led the paper to become a historical site, something that the Society for Professional Journalists decides on? Yeah, well, I think in their their letter granting us this designation, they pointed out the tremendous hardship over the years and the perseverance to keep this newspaper alive. Silverton has been through a lot. Uh, the boom and bust cycles of the mining industry are just um, really devastating. Then we had, in the pioneer days, a lot of violence. Uh, we had the, the town marshal gunned down barely a block from where I live here by the Ike Stockton gang back in 1881. We've had a series of uh, mining disasters over the years. The great fire at the Gold King Mine in 1906, it killed eight people. That same year, we had the St. Patrick's Day snowslides all around Silverton. It was a horrendous blizzard. Twenty miners were killed, mostly around Silverton, not in Silverton itself, as mm. Snow slides came down and took out boarding houses and everything. It was just phenomenal. Uh, then, of course, probably the most devastating event in Silverton history was the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918 and 1919. For some reason, Silverton got particularly hard. It killed 10% of the people in this town. Wow. That time, the town was maybe 1,700 population. At one point, they had to dig a mass trench up there at Hillside Cemetery They put 61 bodies in. Then they had to dig another trench, another 49 bodies. By the time they were done, it was at least 161 people dead. Scary time. You know, a lot of readers of the paper are able to relive history because I I think on the back page, you publish items from times gone by. That is correct. Silverton, look, Silverton is all about history. It's the whole town is a national historic district. Uh, It really is. When you come to Silverton, you step back into, say, the 1890s, 1900. The old downtown looks very much the same as it did back then. And so that's one of the funnest things I do in my job. I spend a lot of time in the basement of the library going through microfilm of old newspapers 
and it's pretty amazing some of the things you find back here. Back then, to be a newspaper editor out here was you had to be a part-time gunslinger as well. <laughs> the newspaper editor here faced a lot of threats. Um, people coming into his office ready to shoot him, frankly. That did happen. And oddly, isn't your office the old, like, operating room of the hospital? Yes, right now we're actually, uh, I'm sitting in the old operating room in the Miners Union Hospital that was built in 1907 by the Western Federation of Miners. Now it's uh, basically kind of a, a little business park in a way. The hospital here closed in 1958, I believe. Um, this brings up a lot of interesting things because a lot of the older people in town were born in this exact room that I'm in, that I put the newspaper out in. So oh, they'll come up to my office and say, yep, this is where I was born. And it's pretty funny. And it's also where your paper is born. So That's guess, true. Yeah. Every week. You're not from Silverton originally, Mark? No, I'm originally from Michigan, although I've lived in the Rockies for quite some time now. And is Silverton a town where if you aren't born there, you're never really integrated? Or is it a town where you, you feel like a native? I, that's that's kind of a mixed bag. I think it, it's a very welcoming community. It really is. But there is still... There's still that, that separation, the people who were really born, the natives, they, they're really proud of that, and um, they wear that badge with honor. But if you've been here for a few years, you spend a few winters here, and people start to respect you more. Because, <laughs> yeah, the winters here are so unbelievably harsh, and the isolation, as you probably know, we can get cut off by avalanches for days at a time. It's not for everybody. And a lot of people will come here and thinking, oh, yeah, this I'm staying in Silverton. But that first winter, they're gone. Do you ever pull punches just because it is such a small community and you're bound to run into someone? I, I suppose I do. I, I really do feel that sometimes I'm trying to be too fair. For one thing, I'm, I'm very conscious of getting on my soapbox uh, since for part of the reason we just discussed. We've got people who've lived here all their life, and I'm, I'm going to come in and tell them how they should run Silverton. So I'm very cautious about that. I have to face these people every day, <laughs> the readers, and so I can't afford to anger too many people. On the other hand, at some time, it's just unavoidable. Do you think you'll stay at the paper for a while? You know, I first came here, and I thought I was only probably going to stay a couple years and see how it goes, And then because I'm used to working at the larger dailies, and I really kind of like the daily um, newsroom. But I've been here five years now, and I, I really love Silverton. It's such a great community. I could see myself staying for quite a while, yeah. And there's no guarantee the larger newsrooms will be open in the years to come. It's true. I mean, in, uh, we're doing a lot better than a lot of larger newspapers. We've managed, when, when we first started this venture, it did not look good. The chain that had owned the Silverton Standard, uh, we were looking at losses of thousands of dollars a year to keep this paper going. Somehow we managed to turn that around. We've managed to squeeze out a small profit for three years in a row. Um, a lot of it is due to special projects, uh, our summer travel guide, et cetera. But, but we are making it. I think the niche for community newspapers is probably more secure than for many of these metro dailies. Well, thanks so much for chatting with us. Thank you. Mark Esper speaking with me in 2012. And indeed, he did stay for more than a couple of years. Esper retired as editor and publisher last fall after 13 years at the helm of the Silverton Standard and the Minor Newspaper, a historic site in journalism. With the fall apple harvest underway, it is cider season. Pilgrims drank the stuff like water. Prohibition nearly snuffed it out. 
And more recently, artisanal hard cider, a boozy cousin of apple juice, has proliferated, with cideries popping up across Colorado, meeting the demand for this farm-to-table beverage. Let's listen back to my 2016 conversation with two of the state's ciderpreneurs, Jay Kenny of Clear Fork Cider in Wheat Ridge and Brad Page of the Colorado Cider Company in Denver. Can a cider be complex, like a a beer or a wine? Absolutely. If you start with fruit that is a mix of bitter sharp, bitter sweet, dessert apples, high in tannins, and then you blend it, you end up with something that is uh, unbelievably good and complex. All right. So it's not just any apple that makes cider? Not just any apple. You can make cider from any apple. But if you want to make something that makes people go, wow, I've never had cider that tasted like that, then you need to source apples from a lot of different places. And are some of those grown in Colorado? Some of them are, not as many as we would like. And is that something you hope to change? Yes. Okay. Is cider always made from apples, just to be clear? No. No. It's made from pears. It's made from any fruit that you could ferment. Well... It, the government defines cider as apples only, so pears, perry. Okay, so there's this sort of legal definition right. and then the, I guess, working definition. Uh, it's treated like wine. Is that correct? Yeah, we're, we're regulated as wineries, so we're licensed as wineries. And that's in part because cider is not brewed. It's not heated. Correct. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a fruit fermentation, so it falls under wine. So Sean Larson has been making cider at Big B's in Hotchkiss, and he describes people's reactions in their cider tasting room. You see a lot of surprise in the eyes of the people that either A, say things like, I don't like cider, or I've never had cider before, or, you know, it's been like 25 years and the stuff that I drank was really super sweet. And then you start them off in your tasting room with the driest cider you make, and you hear it quite often, and you, you hear people say, I didn't know cider could taste that way. Yeah, Brad, I think of cider as cloyingly sweet. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's uh, because the people that were making cider commercially were sort of in a market that didn't know what to make of cider. So they were making it like wine coolers, and that sort of set the standard, unfortunately, although Woodchuck always comes to mind, and those guys sort of single-handedly kept the industry alive, although the craft movement is really trying to emphasize the non-cloying side of the beverage. So uh, there are a lot of apple flavors that aren't sweet. And, and once you ferment the sugar out of anything, it doesn't, it's not sweet. Uh, our fermentations go to zero. They're, they're bone dry. Your answer there made me think that to some extent the, the cider industry was on a, was flatlining for a time. Yeah, I think that's true. Uh, I think the craft beer movement became so strong in the United States that uh, there really wasn't that much room for other craft beverages. Then you started seeing the distilleries come in and cider was the logical next thing. Cider's got such an interesting history. I mean, this notion that it goes back to the pilgrims. Why would the pilgrims have had it? Well, if you think about where they were and what sort of sugar could be grown, um, they weren't planting barley. And grapes, um, they were all from England and uh, sort of Northern European to begin with. Apples grew well that came from their their home countries and they found that uh, that was an easy fermentable. I think people think they planted apple trees to eat, but that's not why they were planting apple trees. And New England was a very hospitable place for apple trees to grow. They were planting apple trees to drink. Yes. Okay. The Puritan myth. (laughs) And then uh, prohibition must have done a number on cider. It did a huge number. They stopped drinking it. They cut down the trees and it became a... Wait, they cut down apple trees? cut down apple trees. An unwitting victim of prohibition. Yes. 
mostly the apples that were not good for eating, but good for cider. So if uh, you had a, what the English refer to as spitters, um, there wasn't a market to eat those apples because they're only good for making alcohol. So those, those certain varieties were really lost. Is it hard to make cider? It's hard to make good cider. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just, just briefly, take us through the process because, again, it's not a brewing. No, so the process is to uh, pick fruit, collect it, make sure it's clean, crush it, ferment it, filter it, and then adulterate it if you're going to adulterate it. I mean, it changed the flavor in some fashion, and, and then bottle it and sell it. Okay. Well, that was a, a very cursory introduction. <laughs> it was. I mean, most <laughs> people, when we version. give tours, uh, the, the, the thing we say is, because there's so many breweries in Denver and in Colorado in general, that we don't have a brew house, so we don't heat up. There's no wort. There's no kettle. So it's a winemaking process. We start with, with juice, and that's the source of the sugar for fermentation. And after the fermenter, there's a lot of similarities, although dealing with fruit juice as opposed to sugar from... Uh, mash, malt is a whole different thing, but... Uh, and are, are there barrels? Well, we yeah, we barrel-age some things. I mean, so the big difference in beer and cider uh, from a consumer standpoint, I guess, and uh, a making standpoint is all the sugars in cider are fermentable. So in beer, you always have a little residual sugar left over from the malt sugar that doesn't ferment. So um, if we have any residual sweetness in the cider, you just got to make sure there's no yeast because otherwise it'll re-ferment in the bottle. Yeah. And if I drink a cider, is it all one kind of apple or are there blends in a way that, that you know, w- wine can be? Usually what you're drinking is a blend. There oh. are single variety ciders, uh, some of which are quite good, uh, but they're, they're hard to find. And the market is not quite there yet in terms of its development. And I think that's a strength. Uh, I've made the argument for a few years that... Um, the fact that there's no equivalent of a Cabernet in the cider world is a strength for us in the long run because people will value the blends and the flavors that come from these great apples. Brad Page is co-owner with his wife, Kathy, of the Colorado Cider Company in Denver. Jay Kenny is CEO of Clear Fork Cider in Wheat Ridge. We spoke in 2016. And if we've piqued your interest in all things apple... There are events this month, including the Yaya Farm Apple Fest in Longmont, October 16th, and the Hard Cider Fest in Hotchkiss, October 30th. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.